The Transfiguration. This is one of those stories about Jesus' life that is very hard for us to relate to. (laughs) Because most people, and I would probably say nobody since the Apostle Paul, has ever actually seen Jesus with their physical eyes. Not sure if that's exactly correct, but I'm putting it out there. Since we, we have inner visions of him, some people have visions where they've seen Jesus in his glorified state, but those are with the eyes of the heart. Jesus, after he ascended, went to the right hand of the Father, and that's where he sits, interceding and preparing for the day when all enemies are under his feet. But we don't see him physically, do we? We have the Spirit, which cries out in our heart, and we can feel his presence. We talk a lot about his presence. But we don't actually see him with our physical eyes. We will someday, when he returns, that's what we talk about it, we say it in our creed, that he's going to return to the earth to judge the living and the dead. And when that happens, you and I are going to see him, like it said in Corinthians, face to face. And that means we're gonna see him physically because he has a physical body, just like you and me. We're gonna see him like the disciples saw him but we're gonna see him not in his pre-glorified state before the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension. We're going to see him in his glorified body, which is what the disciples saw on the mountain. They saw a preview of what it was going to be like when Jesus comes back. I don't know if that's news to you or if that's something you've ever thought about before. (laughs) Um, We're going to see him that way. Whether we're here on earth when he returns, like if he's coming tomorrow or in a couple of years, or even if we die and it's another 50 to 100 years from now, the Bible says that he's coming back with his saints who have already fallen asleep. So those of us who die and are with him in whatever way that means in heaven, when he comes back to the earth to judge the earth and start recreating the earth for the new heavens and new earth, we're coming back with him, which means we're going to see him in this physical world face to face. I mean, I know I'm talking about things that are very hard to conceptualize or understand. This is just so far from our experience. And I think that's what makes it difficult in talking about this event in Jesus' life and for those three disciples, um, Peter, James, and John, who saw it. In fact, we know from the story here, they never talked to anybody about it. In fact, in another uh, passage from one of the Gospels, Jesus told them not to talk to anybody about it. Sometimes I almost wonder if it sort of like got lost in their memory to be reawakened afterwards. It was so far out of their experience. There was no way to absorb what they just saw. So there is, there's definitely mystery in it. There's no way we're gonna plumb the depths this morning or ever if we've studied it about what that experience was like. We can talk about it, we can study about it, but we have not experienced it and we don't know what it feels like 
to see Jesus in his glorified body, glowing from within his body. His face was shining, his, his body was so full of light that his clothes became blindingly brilliant. Have you ever seen anybody like that? Maybe in science fiction movies, right? Where there's some being that comes with light and has all these things. Okay, but that's all made up. It's all made up. We're just talking about something that we have no idea of. Now we have examples in scripture, one of them being the story of Moses that give us a little bit more background. If you know the context of that reading from, um, that we read our Old Testament reading, he had gone to speak to God at God's invitation on the mountain and he had asked God to show him his glory because he needed to know that God was gonna keep going with them and take and give him what he needed as the leader of these thousands of Israelites to get to the promised land. And he said, I don't know, I am not convinced they're failing, I don't know what to do, I need some indication that you're going with us and I need to see your glory, I need to see your power, I need to see who you are. And God said, okay, I'm going to show you my glory but it's gonna have to be in this way because no one can see me face to face and live. So I'm gonna hide you in this rock and I'm gonna pass by you and you're gonna see my back, but you're not gonna see my face. But there I'm gonna proclaim to you who I am. So that happened and unbeknownst to Moses, probably, he, he saw that and then he stayed on that mountain for 40 days and 40 nights and he never ate or drank anything which means that whatever he saw and experienced with God's glory sustained his body for 40 days and 40 nights. And at that time, God gave Moses everything that we know of of the law, everything. The whole five books of the Bible come out of that encounter that Moses had with God on the mountain. He comes back down and what happens? What did it say? Did anybody pay attention? (laughs) His face was glowing. He looked like an alien. His face was glowing. And when the leaders saw it, they're like, oh no, they became very afraid. Say, what has happened, what is this? And then he had to speak to the people. And what he decided to do was to put a veil over his face because they were so frightened. So he talked to them with a veil on so they were not distracted and terrified and overwhelmed by the fact that his face was glowing. And it says that every time he went back to speak to God on the mountain and then later God's presence, that same presence came into the tabernacle that was made. Whenever Moses went there, he took the veil off and he spoke to God face to presence. (laughs) God said, I can't show you my face, but his presence was there in a way that was visible and concrete, was light and cloud, rolling thunder, huge noises, all kinds of things. But whenever he talked to the people, he put the veil on because it was too much for them. So there's something about being in God's presence when he manifests himself a certain way that causes us to change. It caused Moses to change. 
And Jesus changed on that mountain. He changed into what he was actually called to be, which was God's son who's going to rule and reign. So are you getting a little bit of an idea of this thing? Of the, the, there's a physical change on Jesus' body. Now, like I said, we have not experienced that. I doubt anybody here has. Maybe you've had, an ex- some people have these extraordinary experiences of, of, of an inner vision of seeing Jesus, and he's glowing or he's bright. This is not just like, these are different from you just having an imagination. They actually have a vision, right? Some of you may have had that. Um, or you've had ex- times when your imagination has become lighted up in prayer or in church or during a piece of music and you get a picture, you feel that you hear God speaking to you, you may even get an image of Jesus' face or his hands, his eyes, but these are still images from the heart. They're being communicated to you through the presence of the Holy Spirit. You're not seeing them with your physical eyes, you're seeing them and feeling them with the eyes of your heart. Those are still very valid. Those are his presence. That's what we call it when we say we sensed his presence. He was walking amongst us and we felt this thing. Our eyes are not opened. Our physical eyes are not open to see him, but yet he is here. This is what we do every time we gather together. We say he's here. That means that Jesus' presence is here. We just don't have our eyes open to see him. God has not chosen at this moment to reveal himself that way to our physical eyes but it's possible to see him with your spiritual eyes this morning, to feel him in you, to feel his presence. That's very real. And many of you, I know because I've talked to you, I've heard your gratitudes, I've heard you experience it. There's times in your life, small, medium, and large, (laughs) that you have actually felt something of his presence and you knew it was him. Now we'd say that's him coming to us veiled, right? He's not revealing all of who he is yet because we couldn't take it. We'd be terrified. We'd be overwhelmed. We hardly know what that kind of love is. So he veils himself for our protection. But he's always present. He's always speaking to us because he loves us so much. He's always revealing himself to us. He puts himself down into a very tiny package so that we can take it. That's what it meant that he, re- he came from heaven and he took on our mortal flesh. He became like us so we wouldn't be frightened of him, so we wouldn't be destroyed by his holy presence. And he still does that today because he's still speaking to you and you feel him, you feel nudges, you feel movement, you see something beautiful. Somebody smiles at you and you feel a warmth inside. You hear a word from Father Eric or Father Steve. You go to confession. You come up and you take the Eucharist and something feels something. You don't even know how to describe it, but that's him. That's him mediating himself. That's a big word, but that means he's expressing himself through something else that you can touch and feel and hear and see. That's how much he loves us. He's always reducing himself into something that we can take. 
That's what love does. Love bears all things. Love is willing to reduce itself into a capsule so that you can taste. So what about this transfiguration experience for the disciples can we even relate to? What are we to learn this morning? What is God saying to us through the transfiguration story then? Well, I have a proposal. Now, I shared this proposal last night. It's not just my own. I, we were around the dinner table with my husband, with Talia, and with George. And I have to tell you, I was still at a loss at how I was going to express what was in my heart. I've had a very hard last 10 days, which you can talk to Talia about. Um, we just came back from auditions and some other things and a, a crisis and all kinds of stuff. It's been very hard. And Eric, out of the blue, with five days' notice, asked me, would you preach the sermon on the transfiguration? And I'm like, what? Are you ditching because this is too hard? <laughs> and you're asking me? And... Um, and so I, th I thought, I can't do it. I just can't. I'm, I'm, I've got too many things on my plate. My body is hurting because I've got so much tension. And I just, and he said, well, ask the Lord. And I really, I did. And I felt the Lord said, Becca, you can do this. You can do this. I want you to do this. So that's what I'm offering. So I, anyway, I went through this proposal last night. I said, I don't even know how to put this into language that the average person can even get anything from. And you know, I'm not putting George down at all, but he would say he's a very average Joe. <laughs> he says, I, I don't know what the heck you're talking about. <laughs> I want to understand, but I don't. Can you put this into language that I can get? So I'm going to do my best and with the help of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and I know we're at all different places. Our understandings, our background our, is so varied at Light of Christ people with seminary backgrounds and have people that are baby Christians that have hardly ever read the Bible, and we're aware of that, and it makes it difficult in knowing how to speak to you, but I'm going to try, and if I can get a little feedback from you, that would be great Why we're talking. You know, don't be afraid. To, I'm not an African, but you know how when we have the Africans come to visit, it's like, can I get an amen? Is anybody, does anybody hear me? <laughs> so I may ask you a couple times. So what I want to propose is that here at Light of Christ, as a congregation, and as the individuals, who many of you I do know, some I don't, some of you I know extensively, I want to propose that we are having experiences that are akin to the transfiguration and we are not realizing it. What does akin mean? Like. We are having experiences similar to, like the transfiguration, and we are not realizing it. We are having encounters with Jesus that are like the transfiguration in certain ways. They have some of the same characteristics, and we do not realize what is happening to us. Now, why do I say that? I'm gonna give you a list. This is a little bit just 101, foundational, just to set this up. We know, right, and we trust that Jesus is with us. 
He said himself that he promises never to leave us or forsake us. His presence is here. I've said this already, right? We know he's here. He's right here with us, right? Even right now. He's with you every day because you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Like George said, well, I don't know about all this stuff, but I still come here. So I must be trusting because I come here. Yes, you are. You are trusting that Jesus is with you because you come here. That's a truth, that's a foundation. The other foundational thing is we know that he's the risen Christ, like I talked about. He's full of glory, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, he's kingly, he has authority. This is something we know from scripture, it's a foundational thing, we say it in the creed, this is the stance that he is in. This is not the pre-cross Christ, this is the post-cross, post-resurrection Christ. He is in his glorified body, shining like a million suns. He has all authority in the universe, all of it. And the enemies are one by one going under his feet until the end of this age, and we're gonna see it with our eyes. We also know that we are told to seek his face. We heard a couple of weeks that we're to ask and knock, to seek him. There's an old hymn, some of you who have been churchgoers for a long time know, to look full in his wonderful face. We're also told in the book of Hebrews, we are supposed to approach this throne with this kingly king boldly. We're supposed to go into the throne room and approach this Jesus on the throne. That's been won for us. We have that right as sons and daughters. These are foundational principles. This is true for every single person in this room. I don't think I, I, I know most of it. All here are Christians. We know we trust in Christ. So if those things are happening, if he is here, he's promised never to leave us or forsake us, he's here in his risen, ascended authority, he's told us to seek his face, to look into his face, to approach him boldly, this is, the, this is what feels like the contradiction. Why are we in so many experiences in our lives right now that are distressing, where we're freaking out? If all those three things I mentioned are true and are present, why are we full of anxiety and why are we stressed and anxious and frightened? And this is why I want to say, I think, I propose, we are in experiences like the transfiguration and we have not realized it. Jesus has decided to start glowing. He has decided to turn his face to us and he's turned up the heat. And we are freaking out. Can I get any kind of amen on that one? <laughs> we are disoriented. 
What is going on? If points one to three are true, why is point four happening? I thought that when we see Jesus, we feel really good. I thought that when Jesus comes and speaks to us, we immediately feel calm and centered and comforted. I thought we'd been talking about coming close to a relationship where he's like our mother and our father. I thought he brings peace. I thought I'd just see him and everything makes sense. Well, like the disciples, when Jesus shows us something about himself that we've never seen before, when he takes the veil off of his face, everything in us goes haywire. We get very disoriented, just like the disciples did. I don't think that we realize that this is one of the things that can happen when Jesus reveals himself to us. I'm not sure we've really considered that this is a very normal reaction when Jesus takes a new step in our life. The disciples were invited by Jesus. He said, I want you to come up onto this mountain with me to pray. He invited, took only three of them, Peter, James, and John. I'm not gonna explain why or try to figure, I'm just gonna look at this story. We're just gonna look at it. And I want you to see if you can identify with anything in here. They were invited by him. Come up, come with me. Come with me to this mountain, let's pray. What, is this, what does the story say that happened? The first thing that happened? They fell asleep. Can you relate? They were asked to go pray with Jesus, their master, and they fell asleep. Now, if you know anything about scripture, you remember there's another time when Jesus asked them to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane and the same thing happened. They fell asleep. At a crucial moment when they were invited to something they did not even know was gonna happen. It was one of the most powerful things in all of Jesus' life, whether it was the transfiguration or the, what he was gonna face in the garden before the cross. They fell asleep. But yet they had been invited. And they went. They said yes to the invitation, but they fell asleep. Then what happens next? Suddenly, it says they became fully awake. <laughs> Boom! Something happened that woke them up. Now, what wakes you up? Noise, light. Fear. It's usually not something very gentle, is it? It's something that shakes you up out of your sleep. There's been a change. In what? What changed? What was the change that they woke up to? In Jesus. Hmm? Okay, but he had already, he had been with them all the time. Something in him changed. He began to glow. Also, he happened to be talking to Moses and Elijah. Now, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? I don't know. <laughs> Something extraordinary was happening. 
But Jesus changed. Does that mean he was not the same Jesus? Does that mean he wasn't loving? That he wasn't giving hope? That he wasn't about healing? No, but he was revealing something about himself that they had never seen before. What was their reaction? Yeah, they wanted to do something. You get from, and the story's repeated in Matthew and Mark, so I'm gonna add a few things there, but in our, in our story, uh, Peter blurts out something, doesn't he? And it, it says there that actually um, what was happening is he didn't know what else to say. He didn't even know what to do. You get this sense that there, there's shock, there's bewilderment, there's disorientation is what I'm calling it. Overwhelmed. Can anybody relate to that word? Peter did what was exactly what he was always like. He blurted something out. That's what he always does. And when this change occurred in Jesus, he did the same thing he always does, and he came up with a great idea. And actually, my husband can explain this more, it wasn't that far, it wasn't off course to what Jewish people knew what to do when there was some kind of epiphany of, from heaven is you set up a monument, you set up an altar or a tabernacle, you do something to honor that place so that it's remembered. So it wasn't the idea was like off base in terms of its response, it, it, it was a good idea. But we get a sense from the story, it didn't fit and it didn't work. In fact, he had no response. <laughs> Nobody answered him on it. Jesus didn't answer him at all. It wasn't what God had in mind. Did he get punished for it? No. There was no answer to his idea, no response. Instead, what happens? A cloud comes in. And the right understanding of that cloud is not like a dark cloud, it's a cloud of light. Okay, so here's Jesus, already glowing and talking to Moses and Elijah, and now comes this cloud of light, which in their minds they would have understood is something like what they heard about happened with their people thousands of years ago in the desert that God showed up in a pillar of cloud and of fire. Okay, all of their circuits are going, God in heaven, this is like the Mount Sinai. This is what Moses saw. People burned up to a crisp if they touched that mountain. The people were scared to death. Moses had to cover his face. They knew all this. This cloud starts to come, and it says it overshadowed them. They found themselves in this cloud. And it says they were terrified. Again, is that what you normally think about when you think about wanting to be close to Jesus? <laughs> then what happened? They heard God's voice speaking things. God spoke. 
out of that cloud. They heard him. They knew, they heard exactly what God said. But they didn't comprehend it. They couldn't understand it. They didn't know what he was talking about. And so much so, they couldn't even speak about it afterwards. They didn't speak about it until after Jesus had ascended and Pentecost had fallen and they grouped together as the disciples from the book of Acts. They had no comprehension of what, Jesus, what God said about Jesus there. This does not sound like a pleasant or comforting experience. <laughs> this sounds very stressful, unnerving, disturbing. But this was still the same Jesus. This was still their loving master who healed them, who spoke to them, who ate with them, who slept with them, but yet this was something they had never seen before in him. Here he was expressing a reality about himself that was unknown to them previously. They were bewildered. Now what I'm proposing is that Jesus is doing this very thing in our lives at Light of Christ. He is showing us aspects of himself that we have not previously known. Our first reactions are of distress, not necessarily comfort. All we can see and feel is our distress. The appearance of Jesus in our picture is not understood. We can't figure out what he's doing. We don't understand what he's saying. He seems foreign to us. We might even think that Jesus is not there in our circumstances and distress. We feel so discomfited that we think maybe he's punishing us or withdrawing himself from us. Or that life circumstances are too big and he can't solve them. Our world is falling apart and he's not there. But what I'm proposing is that right here in the midst of our congregation and right in the midst of your personal life, Jesus is showing up in a way that he has not up till this point. He's taking a veil off of his face. He is shining towards you because there's something he wants you to know about him and something he wants you to experience about him that you have never experienced before. His face is shining with an intensity and light that has increased, not decreased. It's increased. He's turning up the heat. And he's invited us to come up onto the mountain with him and see him this way. He has decided, he alone has made the decision, it's time for me to reveal myself to Jim Schatzman. It's time for me to reveal myself to Abby. It's time to reveal myself to Dean. I could name every single one of you, including us who are in the leadership. Jesus has made the decision to do this. It's not because of your whatever, holiness, your maturity. He's made the decision, just like this with the disciples. They didn't know anything about this. He invited them to come onto the mountain with him. 
And like the disciples, we fall, we've fallen asleep. We've gotten very nervous. Our flesh reacts all over. We fall asleep. We can't tell what's going on. Then we're rudely awakened because something has occurred in our lives that has just absolutely shot us to pieces. We can't tell what's going on. We're getting disoriented. And what I'm proposing is that you can't see it yet with your eyes, but Jesus has come closer. His face is glowing with his love, and he is encountering you in a way you've never been encountered before. All the stuff happening in your life is a reaction to that. Why does Jesus do this? What is his purpose? Why does it happen this way? Why don't I feel better right away? Where is my comfort, my healing, my love, my affirming Jesus? I'm going to turn to a passage in the book of Hebrews. It's not in our reading today, but it goes with a lot of things. And I'm going to read it to you in the Message Bible just because I think, based on my conversations with my friend George, that this may be easier for you to grasp than um, in the translations we're used to. And this is the answer. Why is this happening? Why does Jesus come to us like this and allow us to be so disoriented? In this all-out match against sin, don't feel sorry for yourself. Or have you forgotten how good parents treat children and that God regards you as his children? My dear child, don't shrug off God's discipline. Don't be crushed by it either. It's the child he loves that he disciplines. The child he embraces, he also corrects. God is educating you. That's why you must never drop out. He's treating you as dear children. This trouble you're in is not punishment. And I'm gonna say that again. This trouble you are in is not punishment. It's training. It is the normal experience of children. Only irresponsible parents leave children to fend for themselves. Would you prefer an irresponsible God? We respect our own parents for training and not spoiling us. So why not embrace God's training so that we can truly live? While we were children, our parents did what seemed best to them. They weren't perfect, but they did the best they could. But God is doing what is best for us, training us to live God's holy best. At the time, Discipline is not much fun. It always feels like it's going against the grain. Later, of course, it pays off handsomely, for it is the well-trained who find themselves mature. It is the well-trained who find themselves mature in their relationship with God.
the people that this book was written to were Jewish Hebrews. They were in very difficult circumstances. Life was getting hard for them. They were getting confused. They were wondering whether God was abandoning them. They couldn't understand what was happening. The writer of Hebrews, met, met, Steve shared this with me, my husband, Father Steve, that it's often wondered if Hebrews is actually a sermon that was given, and this is a written down sermon. And what he's doing is encouraging him, saying, this, what you're experiencing, is not God punishing you, and this is not God withdrawing from you. He's actually getting closer, and he's training you in the, in the, in the true meaning of what discipline means. Now, I will say this, that discipline sometimes has an aspect of correction and punishment in it. And if you look at the psalm, what did we say? Verse 8, O Lord our God, you answered them indeed. You were a God who forgave them. That's really good news, right? We like to hear that. God answered us, he forgave us, yet punished them for their evil deeds. There's time when punishment is appropriate, but a good father, it does not, that's not the centerpiece of his discipline, is not his punishment. That's a very small part of his training and disciplining of his child. It's just a tool that he uses to help guide you and correct you so that you know what way to go and how to be trained in the proper growth. It's not his orientation towards you. He's not a punishing God. He's not trying to burn you up and teach you lessons by punishing you all the time. He's disciplining you. He's training you. He's, he's taking you like a gardener does a tree or a vine and he's, he's, he's He's, he's tying ropes on this side to help you grow this way, and he's pruning you over there. That's not to punish you. That's to train you to grow so that you will bear the most fruit, so you'll be happy, so you'll be able to take in nourishment. This love that God is expressing through you, to you in his discipline of you as a child it's a sign that his face is actually toward you. His face is full of light, a light that is so pure and loving that we don't know how to react. This is a love we have never experienced before. It is a love that is determined to burn away the things that have been hurting and destroying us. This is the love we were talking, read in Corinthians, and we'll never give up does not rejoice in evil, but rejoices in the truth. This is a side of Jesus, I have to admit, we're not really used to, and we don't like in our culture. But I'll tell you, this is not apart from his love. This is more of his love. This is the kind of love, like the preacher of Hebrews is saying, is what a good father shows his child when he's training and preparing him for adulthood. So I'm proposing that what you are facing, what we are facing as light of Christ is two things happening at the same time. Jesus' face is shining with more glory than ever before. In fact, we're called light of Christ in our church. Jesus' face is shining with more glory in your life and in our congregation than he ever has before, and at the same time, we're getting distressed. This is not a contradiction. This is not a sign that something's wrong. It's actually a sign that something is right about the context and the circumstance. It's a sign that there are things in you that need to be trained and disciplined. 
and you're growing. You cannot grow without discipline. This is not an accident, this is not a mistake, it has a purpose. This is a decision that Jesus has made in the, in the way that he has decided to reveal himself. He knows that it is time for you to grow up into a new phase of maturity. You may be moving from childhood into young adulthood. You may be growing from a baby Christian into an elementary school Christian. There's nothing wrong with that. Where you are is where you are. But this is a time of change. Transition is hard. Change is hard. Using new muscles is hard. Changing your diet is hard. Learning to walk after you have damaged your legs is difficult. You have to do remedial work. You have to learn new ways of doing things. But as the preacher of Hebrews says, at the time, discipline isn't much fun. It always feels like it's going against the grain. But later, it pays off handsomely, for it is the well-trained who find themselves mature in their relationship with God. So my proposal still is whatever place you're in, Jesus is calling you forward into a growth that can only be accomplished by discipline and training. He is forging gold out of you. He is refining you. The light in his face not only has the power to warm you and comfort you, it also has the power to cleanse you, to refine you, to purify you, to bring out the gold in you. It is still his loving kindness. Don't make any mistake about it. It is his commitment to you. He would be a terrible father if his love did not have this aspect to it. This is happening at the same time Jesus' presence is with you and you are being distressed. They are related. They are not two separate things. So what do we do? This is George's question. What do I do? Tell me something, not some big grand thing. What can I do right now? How do I get prepared? He said, how do I get prepared to meet that face when he's coming again, which I don't understand anything about. How do I get prepared now so when I meet his face, I don't dry up like a crisp so that I can look at him? Well, my first answer to you is that much of your first response is involuntary. Distress, disorientation, heat, pressure, fear. These don't take any work on our part, do they? <laughs> just like the disciples, they just happen. Your first response just happens. You don't have to do anything to make a response. And what I want to tell you is join the human club. If you're distressing over the fact that you're distressed, join the club. This is what it means to be a human being and encounter Jesus Christ. You will feel a certain amount of discomfort. Whatever is in there, whatever your personality is, good and bad, even the good, Peter, what Peter's personality was good. He was used later to start the church. There's nothing wrong with that. His ideas are not bad. They're just not trained. They're not matured but they're still good. Let it out. You might as well settle it now. 
It's already happening. You're already stressed out. You're already disturbed. You are quaking at the knees. <laughs> you are trembling. You are weak. You are drained. And you are nervous. Just let's call it like it is. None of us can stand up properly when cho Jesus chooses to get closer to us with something new. Not one of us. It is a normal and expected result in us humans as sons and daughters to experience stress when Jesus' face begins to shine. This is normal. Yes, there are times when his presence truly comforts, quiets, and settles us, and we need this, but I want my proposals right now at Light of Christ, this is not what Jesus is doing for most of us. We're getting bit, I'm not saying we don't have it, we don't have support, we don't have comfort, we don't have moments when we're feeling that, but a lot of us are actually experiencing, that's just the small part, most of our lives are feeling distressed. That's because the light of his face is increasing and is unsettling us. What do we do? What do we do when we're in this distress? How do we endure and come out to the other side? The other side of this is where you do experience comfort and you do experience strength and you experience quiet, but it comes with confidence and skill and invigoration. Friends, our idea of rest is all wrong. It's not withdrawal and escape. It's not protection. Rest is a place of being invigorated with so much life and confidence in who you are and what your skills are and what God is doing in you that no matter what situation you're in, you know what to do and you can do it. That's rest, not withdrawal. So my first thing to tell you is don't run away. Don't run away, don't bolt. Stay engaged. Don't run away. Very basic. Don't leave the mountain. Fall over. My second thing is fall over. Be afraid. Say dumb things. But stay engaged. My third thing is don't wait until the distress is over. Take some kind of action now right in the middle of the distress. Don't wait until a day you feel better. Don't wait until it subsides. Right now, when you feel, in the moment of your greatest distress, there's action that you need to take. What is that action? Call out, Jesus, help me. It's not complicated. Call out, Jesus, help me. And in tandem with that, then notice him showing up. Look for his face. Point it out when you see him. Notice him answering your cry for help. And it's small. It starts out small. You want total rescue, and he's saying, that's not how I'm working. That's not how I'm training you right now. I'm going to train you to see my face in the small things. We've been talking a lot about gratitude and appreciation messages. This is what we're talking about. Notice. George really offered this as something that he's been experiencing in his own life, that he's just seeing little things. It can be in something somebody says to you. It can be the fact that uh, you were given a gift that you didn't deserve, a little thing. You found a parking spot or whatever. Um, 
in these little interactions during the day. Your boss let you off a work hour early. Notice that that's Jesus helping you. He's right there. Notice his face. Look for it. Look for those little warm moments, those gifts of beauty, encouragement. Notice him right in the middle of your distress. And uh, um, we asked this question ourselves last night. You might be looking in the wrong place. He might not be showing up in the way that you usually think. Think small. This Lent, you need to start a list of the places, times, and people that you notice that you're being given a small gift. You need to see that this is Jesus with you every day, bringing small encouragements and strengthening you for the daily task of growing up. That is your task right now, is to grow up. Right in the middle of your distress, don't wait. And here's a few intentional things that you can do to stay engaged that means I'm not running away. These are very practical, very intentional things you do with Jesus and you do with God's people. Number one, listen to a worship song. Whether you're feeling good or bad, I don't care what it is, YouTube and find a worship song and listen to it. And recognize that that is God, that's Jesus' face for you in that moment. Number two, call a friend and get together. Just do it. Don't wait. Call a friend and get together. And this is related. Ask someone to hold your hand through a tense moment. Don't wait till you're feeling better. In that most tense moment, call up somebody you know and say, can you hold my hand through this? I am panicking. I am distressed. Whatever it is, I'm mad. Can you hold my hand through this? Now, in church, what can you do in this community of God's people? Open your mouth and sing. Louder. With conviction, even if you don't feel like it. Even if you have a problem with the song. Even if it's too loud, if it's too soft, if it's too contemporary, if it's too old, whatever. I don't, we have all kinds of excuses to not enter in. And this is a command that Jesus gives in Scripture. You are to open your mouth and sing. Now, I happen to know, because I've been through with all these professors about singing as of lately, that singing is such a fundamental part of the human identity. It comes from down here, and without your singing voice, you have no identity. Your emotions come out of here and where you sing. And as you get older and older, what we do with our voice is we control it more and more so that it's not expressing our real emotion. And true open singing and speaking comes from down here, and it's where the emotions are fully engaged. In fact, there's a quote that one of the professors said, the muscle of the soul is your voice. You've got to open your mouth and sing. Right here. Raise your hands. Just do it. Defy your hesitancy. Open up your body. Just do it. Just do it. This training, folks. Go up for prayer. 
Don't sit there when you got something bothering you. Don't wonder, should I go, should I not go? What am I gonna say? What are people gonna think? Go. My last one, invite people over for a meal, eat together with friends. This is my favorite. Those of you who've been in my engaged groups in the past year know I love to talk about this. We need to eat together more often. And that's one of my proposals for Lent. I said, someone to invite you, I want you to make a dinner party and I want you to invite people over to your house. Create a dinner for them. Do these things when you feel the distress of discipline in your life. Don't wait until you feel good. And like we talked about with George, these are small things that accumulate over time and build into big change. Over time, you'll find yourself less distressed. Jesus' presence in your life will invigorate you, not scare you. You will feel up to the task of becoming an adult son or daughter. You will love to seek his shining face. You will welcome the discomfort of discipline because you trust your father so implicitly. So this Lent, take action. Don't run away from Jesus' shining face. Don't despair, don't hide, don't give up. Don't think about Lent as trying to abstain from things. Think about it as taking action. In Christian discipline, the only reason we may fast from something is to make time and energy for something else. I have to, my, one of my, I have to be honest, one of my pet peeves about Lent is that people love to talk about, I'm not gonna eat this, I'm gonna give up sugar, I'm not gonna eat alcohol. And frankly, folks, it's irrelevant. I'm just gonna be honest with you, it's irrelevant. because I can guarantee most of you are not doing anything different. You're just deciding not to eat that thing. You're not replacing that with something else. That's why I want you to think about Lent as a time to take action. Apply these things. Start taking action in this. Stay in the game. Don't bail out someone's hand who has gone through this before and hang on tight. Encourage one another to endure the discipline. Make an effort to sing during this Lent. Raise your hands. Defy despair and fear. Make a special dinner for friends and have them over. What is our name, Light of Christ? What is our name? Love, hope, and healing. Christ means chosen one, anointed for a task. We are the light of the chosen one. God said at the transfiguration, this is my son, marked by my love, focus of my delight, listen to him. This is our identity here at Light of Christ, to be loved by God, to be delighted in by him, to be disciplined by him, to be his sons as daughters, to see his face shining in splendor, to feel our Father's love and commitment to us, to experience his cleansing and healing, to be made ready to meet him face to face. I know this is long, this is a lot this morning, but I really, and I know my colleagues do too, feel this is so important. This is our word to light of Christ right now. This is what he's saying to you and what he was doing in your life and what he wants to happen. He is making you ready to face him face to face because we are going to meet him when he returns and it's gonna be the best homecoming experience we could have ever imagined. 
to be able to look at him in his face, like looking into the sun with no fear and no hesitation because we have been trained and disciplined and grown up into full sons and daughters who are completely secure in his healing love. That's where we're headed. So let's join together. Let's get together this Lent and let's talk about this together. Let's over our meals, let's do this together. Let's talk about what Jesus is doing in our lives. Talk about these things, that, these actions that we can take. Let's hold each other's hands while we do them. And we are going to see the glory of Jesus Christ. We are going to see his face and not be afraid anymore. Amen.